Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Last week, I hosted a conversation at the Michael Hayden Center at the Shar School at George Mason University on the ongoing crisis with Russia over Ukraine. Our guests were former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, Rose Gottmuller, former Senior CIA Operations Officer, John Seifer, and former Senior Intelligence Analyst, Andrea Kendall-Taylor. I want to share that conversation with you all today. We'll be right back with that after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Let me get the discussion started by asking, and Andrea, we'll, we'll, we'll start with you. Why is Putin doing this? Why is this so important to him? And why now, right? What's, what's behind the timing? Yeah, a lot to unpack there and no kind of simple answers. Um, but I well, first of all, it's great to be on this panel um, with these guests. I feel really um, honored to be um, with them tonight. So thank you for having me. But I think first and foremost, um, this is about Ukraine. Um, this is about keeping Ukraine in Putin's sphere of influence and in his orbit. Uh, I think it's an intensely personal issue for Putin. You know, he has tried and failed repeatedly to increase Russian influence over Ukraine over his 22 years in power. So I think he sees this as you know quite personal, and that this is his time to reassert influence. Um, but I also, you know, we have to underscore it's about Ukraine, but it's also about more than Ukraine. Um, I think that very much for Putin, this is about revisiting the end of the Cold War. 
Uh, this is about reversing time. It's about rewriting the security order. It's about reinstating spheres of influence in Europe. Um, and I think kind of the why now question, I think, you know, there's, you know, we obviously don't know exactly what it is. Um, I think in terms of the Ukraine question, when Putin sees what's happening in Ukraine, um, he can see that trends are not moving in a direction that's favorable to Moscow. So his intervention, particularly in 2014, had the opposite effect of only hardening Ukrainians' desire to reintegrate into Euro-Atlantic institutions. So he sees quite clearly that things are not moving in his direction. And so I think if he, he judges if he has to interfere and intervene to right that trajectory from Moscow's perspective, then now is the time to do it before the Ukrainian military continues to enhance its capabilities. Um, but I also think it's, you know, I, I, I uh, personally think that there are legacy issues at play here. I think Putin is thinking long term. I think he believes that he is the last Russian leader who would be willing to take such risks to reassert Russia's role as a great power. Um, and so I think for him, the time is, you know, his clock is ticking, time is ticking. And so he, I mean, I think he's, you know, getting ready to break things. I mean, I think he really sees this. He sees the West as being in decline. He sees the United States as distracted. He sees the transatlantic relationship as um, under strain. And um, he, he, he is leaning in now, I think, to do to accomplish these very maximalist objectives, because um, I think, you know, he, he views this as the opportune, opportune moment to do that. Yeah. John, do you want to add anything? And maybe at the same time, give us your perspective on Putin the man. Who are we dealing with here? Uh, just to add, I, you know, I would think I totally agree with Andrea. I think. Ukraine is moving further and further away from, from Russia. It's on the upswing. It's, it, it's, it's showing itself to be a, a model of moving to the West, which is bad for him and his people. And so I, I totally agree with that. I also do think there's something, some of this crisis is built into the way we previously dealt with Putin. I think he's essentially, as we look at, he's been in power now 20 years. The last 10 years, he's been essentially in a political war against us. And he's continued to take quite aggressive, attacks and actions against us. And every time he's done something, we've only pushed back to the point where we didn't want to uh, you know, push him too far. We thought maybe if we only we give him some concessions or, or accommodations, maybe he'll come around, maybe he'll change. And in retrospect, it looks like he saw that as weakness. He saw that as, you know, if he, if he decides to sort of yank our chain, he'll get something out of it. Um, we don't show great strength. We really don't push back. And so now he's He's sort of thrown down the gauntlet, and we have less means to sort of deter this 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 type of action. And you add to that, I think he sort of despises the EU and and Europe thinks they're weak. He sees that U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. He's seen what happens here domestically, January six. He's other kind of things. He sees Americans are very inwardly focused. Most Americans are not interested in another foreign war. So timing wise, I think all these things these things come together. His view of, of our weakness, a view of European weakness, plus just like Andrea said, you know, Ukraine is moving further away, and if not now, when? Mm -hmm. Putin the man, uh, I think that's something we can talk about more as we go along here, but one of the things I like to focus on when I talk to groups is, you know, he's a Czechist. He is a career KGB officer. He's someone who takes pride in the beginning of the Bolshevik state security services that, that use brutality to keep the regime in power at all costs. And many of the things that we've now seen and focused on since 2016 in terms of 
disinformation, sabotage, and subversion, deception, these things we've seen. These are things that were used by the Soviet security services and actually even the Tsar security services before that. So he takes, he came from a background that tried to use these, these aggressive overt tools of intelligence services, of security services to weaken their, their enemies from inside. And in fact, they use them against their own people too. And so I think when we look at, at, at Putin, we need to think of him as with his KGB and Soviet background as well. So I, I think that's, that's something we have to always keep in mind. So, so Rose, um, Andrea and John talked about why this is important to Putin. Why is this important to the United States? There's been a little bit of debate here, right, about that. A little debate here about whether this should matter or not to us. What's the answer to that question? Why does this matter to the United States and why does this matter to the American people? Before I dive in on that, Mike, I'd like to just comment because I do feel, uh, and I know we'll probably get into this in our discussion, I do feel that uh, we uh, are still seeing some opportunity for diplomacy to make a difference here. And in fact, I see some perhaps growing momentum in that direction. We can have a debate about that, but that implies that Putin is not irrevocably on the path that both Andre and John have, have laid out. There is also an aspect of resentment here, I think. And uh, part of what is going on, in my view, is Putin, well, we had Khrushchev all those years ago uh, banging his shoe on the table. This is a, this is a look at me moment for, for Putin and, and getting attention. He was seeing, I think, uh, the United States passing Russia by and, and pivoting to Asia. Well, what has he done in recent times? He's shown he's shown us he's gone off and, and had a great big summit meeting with Xi in Beijing. So uh, this whole crisis has kept Russia and it's kept Putin uh, before the global community on the front pages of the newspaper now for a long time. And I think that's part of what is going on here. He is, uh, you know, uh, he is feeding his own resentment in some ways by making sure that he's causing a lot of trouble for a lot of very important people who have, from his perspective, been ignoring him in recent times. So that means I think that there is an opening still for diplomacy, as long as it does involve the kind of pageantry and symmetry that we are seeing, including several Europeans going off to, to Moscow this week and a continuing attention from, uh, from the top leadership in Washington as well. Uh, but I think, uh, to my mind, it's uh, worth it's worth it to keep that possibility of diplomatic progress open. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it important to the United States? The United States, of course, came out of World War II, uh, the dominant global figure and global country, uh, the superpower that was able to define the institutions that have governed us internationally since World War II. I think that system is worth uh, preserving and of course, evolving it in uh, the direction that makes it also modern and able to cope with the current uh, situation. But all of those principles for which we stand, independence, sovereignty, the ability of nations to continue to develop stable relations with their neighbors without uh, having to be caught in the web of a sphere of influence. I think these so-called sometimes democratic principles are, are worth fighting for. It's worth the United States and, and its NATO allies, its allies in Asia standing up for these principles and the institutions that, that grew, grew up to support them. So to my mind, that is first and foremost. 
why this crisis matters to the United States. It also has to do, of course, again, with a China connection and that Putin and Xi seem to be marching off in the direction of new rules or no rules. In other words, they are rejecting these post-World War II institutions. They want to remake them in their own image. And uh, I think the United States and its allies has to stand uh, also in defense of the institutions and what they mean in terms of supporting democratic principles. Yeah, um, let's let's get into the debate a little bit, Rose, that you, you, you started. I'm wondering if, if you all think that Putin has made up his mind about how far to push this. And if he's made up his mind about specifically what he wants to do or whether he sees his options as, as still open and what, and if so, what are those options that he sees? May I just say a word Mike, to perhaps mention why I think, I think there may be a, a bit of a growing momentum uh, in the direction back of, of diplomacy. Putin, um, in recent times, including in his uh, press conference with Orban a couple of weeks ago, uh, has been talking about that he was going to take the advice of his military, of his military experts. And in just in the last couple of days, we've begun seeing emerge retired military people. Um, I've seen two such um, public you know, media uh, interventions in the last two days, one from General Ivashov, who most of us remember is not a particularly nice guy. But the gist of these communications is to say that this is not going to be easy for the Russian army and invading Ukraine is not a particularly good idea. So in some ways, the combination of Putin stating quite publicly that he's going to ask his military uh, experts for his advice, his military leaders for advice, and then this kind of early shaping of the media environment with retired military people kind of warning against the invasion, it's beginning to look to me like Putin is trying to open up space so that he can make a decision to say, we should proceed down the path of diplomacy and be magnanimous about it because of the advice he's receiving from his military experts. Yeah. So early days yet, uh, but I'm interested to see if my view of this shaping of the media space is going to gain any ground in the coming days. Andrea. I hope Rose is right. Um, but I am more pessimistic, um, I think, based primarily on what we see happening on the ground. Um, we can see, you know, the security situation around Ukraine continues to de- deteriorate on a daily basis. And it is true, like, mass, you know, Putin is clearly the master of optionality. He has created um, a series of options and he could certainly take different paths. And, you know, Rose is right. Maybe there is some opening to open, you know, opening for more diplomacy here. But um, I think what I see is that Russia is continuing to build forces on its borders. And when, you know, thinking back to my intelligence community days, if you were setting up a list of indicators that you would expect to see before a major military invasion, I think we're ticking through those indicators pretty quickly, um, and we're you know we're on those proximate indicators um, uh, that you would see before a significant invasion. And so some of the things we're seeing, you know, first and foremost, we're seeing the arrival of large numbers of personnel, uh, and that's important because what Russia has done to this point is to preposition a lot of equipment, but they didn't necessarily have the people to man it. And we're seeing uh, Russian soldiers showing up in extremely large numbers. 
Um, we're seeing the appearance of the Rosgvardia, which is the National Guard, um, and that signals to me that they, you know, that gives Russia the capability to hold territory. That's who you send in behind the front lines when you're looking to hold uh, territory, you know, presumably in eastern Ukraine. Um, we're seeing, you know, in Crimea, the Russian military down there is now on its high, highest state of readiness. Um, we're seeing the arrival of significant naval assets, including um, things like am amphibious assault ships. Those ships can't stay there forever, right? If they, and they've sailed all the way down from the north through the Mediterranean and now into the Black Sea. They're fully loaded. They're ready to go. You know, I don't know why Putin would go through such an elaborate buildup this way to get to this point if he wasn't intending on using all of these assets. We're seeing the arrival of all of the logistical infrastructure, communications. We had the report about uh, blood supplies showing up. So all of these kind of enablers, the logistics, all of these things that are kind of proximate indicators. And you know, I hear, I'm not a Russian military expert, but in talking to my friends who are, signs that help you distinguish between a military exercise, because by the way, the military exercise starts with Belarus shortly and will continue through the 20th. But signs like things like gasoline tanks on the back of their tanks that give the tanks extra distance, you don't need those for exercises. And so there's little telltale signs, I think, that I hear to suggest, you know, this isn't just about the exercise with Belarus or other things. Um, they are really positioned um, for an invasion, should they so choose. And I, you know, I unfortunately think kind of that window is narrowing. If Putin wanted to pocket concessions, I feel like the time for that was maybe three or four weeks ago before the West has kind of flooded Ukraine with weapons and other things. So, um, you know, I, again, I don't, it's hard to know if a decision has been made, but kind of given the sustained buildup and the types of things we're seeing, um, I, I feel pessimistic and kind of agree with the intelligence community and what Washington is saying that, we're pretty much in the window now, and over the next two to three weeks, um, I think invasion is more likely than not. John, your view? It's interesting. This is so hard because, you know, in a Western perspective, what he thinks he's going to gain from this is crazy. Like, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense, you know, and he looks at this differently than we do. So trying to get into his head is very hard. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's his decision. He, he you know, he is the ultimate decision maker, and then none of us are going to get into his head ahead of time. But I think one thing as the last 10 years has shown us is that he's never going to be satisfied. There's no diplomatic answer or negotiation that's going to make him say, oh, this is good. I, I, I'm comfortable and I'm going to sit back in my country and be happy. He can only be deterred, I believe. And like a bully who's going to just keep pushing and pushing, he has to be scared of what deterrence means. He, there has to be threats that are credible to him that he thinks are going to hurt him. So there's all sorts of things that are important to him. I think he wants the U.S. out of Europe. I think he wants NATO to be weak or NATO to go away. I think he wants countries on his border to be vassals or supportive of, of, of Russia, you know, most, most namely Ukraine. But at the end of the day, I think this is about political survival. You know, he's a dictator. He doesn't have a good sense of his people because he doesn't have elections. He doesn't have rule of law. He doesn't have those things that allow a democratic uh, government to understand and get a feel for, you know, how, how things stand. And so, you know, he has to start looking at, I think the administration's done a good job and NATO allies have done a good job of trying to put the, as many things together to show that there's a price to be paid here. He's going to be a pariah. He's going to be damaged economically. There could be a nasty insurgency in Ukraine. Body bags may find their way back to Russia and cause problems for him. So, you know, as I look at it, you know, there, there's enough there that would make someone who's conservative and trying to stay in power 
sort of back away. And one of the things he has going for him here is the thing I mentioned up earlier is he can do this anytime. Essentially, he can push us, push us, push us. He can back down. We'll all think it's great. And then a year from now, he can play the same game again and get us all rushing to him. Maybe I'll just finish this piece with my own comment here and, and, and then ask Rose one final question. There's plenty of times when, when I went to the sit room with the views of our analysts that, that something wasn't possible diplomatically only to have our diplomats actually achieve it. So that's, uh, that's, that's the comment I'll throw on the table. But Rose, do you think diplomatically, do you think there's space for an agreement where the U.S., does not essentially give away Ukraine and Putin doesn't fully back down? Is there space for such an agreement? The other thing that uh, is clear, and in some ways I agree with how it's been described so far by uh, John and Andrea, uh, he wants to remake the European security architecture in his uh, concept. Now, some of the ideas he's put out on the table, I think, are very good ones. The Russians are uh, suffering some regrets for having killed the INF Treaty, I believe. They're concerned about the advent of new deployments of intermediate-range ground-launched missiles in Europe. And Putin himself put an offer on the table to remove the missiles that we uh, have stated are violations, the so-called 9M729 or SSCA, to remove that missile from Europe and put in place verification measures to ensure it's not there. So, you know, he's put some offers on the table uh, of things that he says uh, Russia would be willing to do. Uh, By the way, that's now been joined. Xi and Putin together uh, agreed that there should be perhaps some constraints on INF missiles in both Europe and Asia. That's probably the most interesting thing that came out of the Beijing summit from my perspective. So in other words, there's some useful stuff that Putin has been proposing that we should be willing to explore. And as far as I can tell from uh, hearing what our diplomats have to say, we have put a clear message out that we are ready to start negotiating on some of these things. We have issues of principle as well. uh, And it means that we are not going to respond to his demand that there be no further NATO enlargement and no enlargement involving Ukraine. Uh, We are not going to move or budge on some of those untenable demands, but there's a whole lot of territory that Putin has staked out himself or his diplomats have staked out that I think we can do some useful work on. And indeed, some parts of the European security architecture, uh, I think, not only deserve refurbishment, but they demand refurbishment, such as modernization of the Vienna document confidence building measures. So, yes, there's, there's territory that he has staked out himself. He should now take yes for an answer because after some years of hesitancy, NATO itself, as well as the United States, are willing to engage on some of these issues. But the other point I'd like to make here is there has to be reciprocity. Putin cannot direct demands at NATO or demands at the United States and expect uh, us to do the heavy lifting. Of course, it has to be a reciprocal kind of uh, arrangement uh, that would come out. Michael, can I add something quick? Sure. Frankly, I, I think we would have been glad to negotiate all of these things without this threat, without a threat of war. I mean, these are issues we brought up before. We'd be glad to talk to Putin about those kind of things. So I think diplomatically, they all should be there if, if Putin wants to use that opportunity to back off to, to move away from this. But I don't think it's the, the INF or something that will change his mind that this is so great, I'm now comfortable and it's all good. I think if he chooses to move towards these negotiations, which he could have had anyway, 
it's just a way to you know to back off for now because he's seen that the, the price of taking action is, is too much. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion on Russia and Ukraine. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, so if he does decide to invade, all right, so, so we're, we're beyond the negotiations you know, we're beyond him successfully orchestrating a coup um, in Kiev, right? But we're beyond all that. And he decides to invade. What will his objectives be? And given those objectives, um, what will the invasion looks like? Who wants to take that first? <laughs> I'll jump in and try. And yeah, definitely welcome other ideas. So, you know, my, my understanding of what he is looking to accomplish is two things. One, he wants autonomy for regions in the East, and that's going to require some sort of constitutional change. Uh, to get that, you're going to have to topple the Zelensky government or have some sort of kind of commanding military position to force that. And as he has stated over and over again, he wants Ukraine out of NATO. Um, and so I think in order to accomplish those maximalist objectives, it will require a significant land invasion that would likely look to kind of encircle Kiev. And then the question becomes like once his troops are in that kind of commanding position, the question to Kiev and to the West is, well, do you want to negotiate now? Um, and so I think that, you know, the, I'm, the, I think I've seen kind of coming out of the um, congressional briefing that got read out from last week, the IC kind of warning about a pincer movement where they really can come around from three sides. They've got the attack from the north and from the east and obviously from the south through bases through Crimea. Um, so I think to me, um, if he is actually looking to accomplish that most maximalist objective, that is likely um, what it would be. John, does he, does he, do you, do you agree with that? And does he hold that territory or does he change the government in Kiev and leave? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, I, I think the one thing we can probably guess is it's not going to look like what we think it'll look like. You know, he, again, he's always trying to use these, you know, sabotage and all these other different ways of doing things and try to sort of keep his enemies off, off balance. I don't think, again, this is, this is Western thinking though, of course, I don't think he wants to invade and hold that country because then he risks, again, body bags. He risks a long-term insurgency. He risks the kind of things that we face in Afghanistan. Um, but I do think he can achieve a lot of goals if he chooses to go in by essentially destroying the military, you know, making the government unstable, maybe having the government fall and even pulling out very quickly because I think he's then weakened Ukraine and any future Ukrainian government has to think this could happen again. And so I think he can achieve his goals without having to occupy the country. And just to want to add one thing here is that I think we in the West and especially in the United States are a little too cavalier about this. I think we're sort of foolish if we think there can be a major war in Europe, a bloody war with huge refugee flows and these type of things without NATO, the US, others somehow getting involved in this. I mean, in 1950 in Korea, we said Korea wasn't part of our zone of interest. He wouldn't 
fight and we, we found ourselves there for a number of years. I'm not suggesting that's what we're going to do here, but the notion that's going to, he's going to go in, he's going to go out and it won't really, you know, then NATO's fine and we're all fine. I, I just find that hard to believe. I think it's going to be uglier and more dangerous than uh, we believe. Can I add one thing before we go to Rose? And I definitely want to hear what she has to say. Um, I think it's a very low probability scenario. And I agree with John that I don't think he necessarily wants to hold territory. Like, you know, he just wants to achieve these objectives, increase his leverage in any future negotiations, and then he would be able to withdraw. There is a low probability scenario in my mind, though, that really haunts me that sticks in the back, which is what if he does want to occupy Eastern Ukraine? I mean, so you look at, you kind of look at the context in which this is happening. You look at what's happening in Belarus, for example, you know, there's 6,000 troops that they'll surge to about 30,000. I know Putin has kind of promised that those troops would leave after the exercises, but I'm not convinced that's the case. And so he's really managed in the last, uh, you know, since Lukashenko's fraudulent election, where he's been Lukashenko's only lifeline, he has totally eroded Belarusian autonomy and he's not leaving. And so what if what if, you know, if he is in this legacy mindset, what if Putin really is looking to increase his control and influence over Belarus, take all of eastern Ukraine? And now he holds this swath of territory. He's bumped his periphery out significantly, returned these historically kind of Slavic heartlands to the Russian territory. Um, again, I think it's a low probability, but it nags me in the back of my mind. And kind of to get back to John's Western thinking, we all think that's outrageous. It is full of risks. Of course it is. Um, but that's the one scenario that really kind of nags me and keeps me up at night. Rose, what I want to ask you is, if he does invade, is there any doubt in your mind that the U.S. would not follow through with the threat of significant sanctions? Um, do you think? No, I have no doubt from okay. everything. Do you think the UK? Do you do you think the UK would join us? Yes, I, I, and more than that, I think the NATO, you know, the you NATO think, countries would. Do join. you think the EU will join us because they didn't join us in 2014? I think the EU is poised to join us. Everything that I am hearing, at least from uh, colleagues in Washington, is that uh, the allies and partners in Europe, including the EU and its uh, organization are really standing firm and they are ready to move on some quite significant sanctions actions well beyond anything that was contemplated in 2014. Uh, the watchwords are start high and stay high. So they are planning, uh, working very closely together to extract some significant, uh, I would say financial, uh, penalties, uh, not not extract, but impose some significant financial penalties on the Russian Federation. So this is all about deterrence, uh, clearly, at the moment. But I think I do see a really much more uh, significant cohesion uh, with the European countries than I had seen uh, in the past. And the impact of those sanctions on the Russian economy, how, how serious do you think those would be? From what I hear, they are going after the banking system. So there will be very significant, uh, very significant impacts on the Russian economy. And then what do we all expect Putin's response to those sanctions to be? Right. What's what's his next step? Of course, there will be some retaliation, no doubt, in those areas where Putin can retaliate. And the energy sector is front, front and center there. But there are other areas, too. You have to 
remember that uh, titanium production, for example, is very much uh, front and center as part of how uh, the Russian Federation earns its uh, earns its keep these days. So there are critical minerals that are important to uh, Western economies as well. So there's definitely going to be some pain on the Western side uh, of the equation, but uh, the focus is on trying to think ahead about ways to mitigate that pain now, really understanding that there will be retaliation from Putin's Russia. If I may just add one point on the previous exchange about how the uh, invasion could unfold, I I don't want to leave the discussion without flagging hybrid methods as well, because I think, of course, day in, day out, we're always at at NATO, always at a level of hybrid activity that is, as we think about it, neither peace nor war, but really bent on causing serious mischief in NATO cyber networks and elsewhere. So that I can definitely see ramping up as a prelude to military invasion. But it is an area that I think we uh, are neglecting really to think about how those, the kinetic and the hybrid will fit together. And I think that's going to be an important part of of how we foresee such an invasion as well. And John and Andrea, um, your thoughts on Putin's pushback against sanctions? Just go quick. I mean, I, I agree with Rose. I, you know, he's got the oil weapon. You know, one of the skills he's had as a, as a Czechist, as a former intelligence officer, you know, this hybrid war where he's weaponized social media and he's weaponized corruption, he's weaponized financial networks, he's weaponized all these types of things against us. We're going to see a lot of that. We're going to see cyber attacks. We're going to see, you know, trying to disrupt and cause trouble around the world, supporting, you know, violent groups and all these types of things. You know, frankly, a lot of them, sort of like our ability to threaten that we're going to do sanctions, he's seen it before. These kind of attacks we, we've seen before, it's just going to be ramped up. And so it, it's serious, but, you know, we got to make, we, nonetheless, we have to make sure that the pain is, is larger for him to try to deter him here. Yeah. Andrea? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And also one more point on the sanctions. So the other thing, Rose is right. I think the focus is going to be the financial institutions and that will have kind of immediate economic pain for the Russians. And of hearing people talk about, you know, if if our last set of sanctions, I think estimates say about two, it cost Russia about two to three percent of, of their GDP. Um, that is, you know, what they're talking about this time will be far and away above um, above that kind of financial economic impact. Um, but the second piece that they're also putting on the table is this export controls uh, discussion. And by that, you know, they will go after things like semiconductors, going after sectors of the Russian economy that drive growth and then that feed the defense budget and the aggression abroad. Um, so it's they're looking to have immediate impact, but there's going to be longer term impact. They are going to go after and squeeze these sectors of the economy, going after things that Putin cares about dearly, like AI, um, making it harder for the regime to innovate. That'll hurt the defense industrial complex. So it's both immediate impact, but there's going to be long term costs um, as well. So that's important. I think the key is, you know, yes, uh, start high, stay high. Um, the, the goal is going to be to make sure it's extremely painful for Putin, but to try to avoid some sort of escalatory spiral that we get caught into, because obviously gas supplies are the immediate lever that Putin can pull. But I am also really worried about cyber. And so if we really do go after Russian banks, might they wield cyber tools to go after our banks? Um, and so we're going to there's that needle to thread where it has to be painful. But how do we also prevent this kind of this escalatory spiral. 
We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. One of the things the White House leaked, you know, for deterrence effect was the fact that that CIA would be in a position to train Ukrainians, right, to fight to fight Russians. And, and, and I ask that not to ask whether that's possible or not, or whether we will do that or not. I ask it in the context of, is, is there a scenario you worry about with regard to escalation? Rose? Well, taking us back to uh, my concern about the hybrid space, I think, frankly, here it is difficult to know. Um, and there's been some concern in my mind that if the attacks do start in that hybrid space, then there is the possibility of some escalatory pressures, but there's also the possibility that we won't take sufficient deterrent action in that space. Time and again, it's difficult to judge the, um, the direction of attack, the focus of the attack, the extent of the attack, and attribute uh, from whence came the attack. So it worries me that not so much that um, that we will get into an escalatory spiral in that space, but that we will be um, insufficiently able to uh, deter. Uh, asking about, you know, well, how do you deter in cyberspace? Okay, well, maybe we start to apply a few economic levers there. Uh, that's that's the hard that's the hard question from my from my perspective. Um, I do worry, and I have to say, I think NATO's been doing some really hard thinking about this. I do worry about spillover also, and uh, John mentioned the possibility, uh, perhaps, uh, sorry, Andre, it was you as well, that that there would be uh, implications, serious implications for NATO from uh, any Russian attack uh, on Ukraine, kinetic or otherwise. And so I think that that is something that worries me very much as well. Yeah. John? Yeah, I, Russians have always been very good in the past of, you know, when we've tried to push back, they've often pushed back very quickly so hard. And, and Michael, you've seen this on, on Russian expel, expulsions of diplomats and our expulsion of intelligence officers after there's been a, you know, a, a large espionage case or something. You know, for example, when we arrested Robert Hansen, the FBI special agent was spying for the Russians. We wanted to punish the Russians by kicking out a bunch of intelligence officers. Well, the next day, the Russians kicked out, you know, more Americans than we had kicked out Russians. And then we then we backed down because oftentimes we don't hold together, even internally in the US government, certainly amongst allies, 
when the Russians show they're serious, we've often sort of backed away. And in this case, we can't, we can't do that. You know, if we if we feel pain from the Russians, if we back off, Putin's just going to see that as weakness and continue to push for more and more of what, what, what he wants here. And so one of the reasons I think we are seeing some of this leaking of intelligence and these type of things where the, the administration has sort of leaked that we have insight into some of the stuff they're trying to do to do a false flag attack or do these kind of things. It's, I think it's it's part of the deterrence package. It's showing them that we have real insight into what's going on in the Kremlin in there and that he ought to take that into his calculus that we may be a better poison than he, he thinks we are. Yeah. Yeah, could I just quickly agree with, yeah. sorry, Andrea, I just want oh, to quickly ahead. agree with John. I've been quite impressed uh, with uh, some of this rollout of intelligence, which I think has uh, in this this interim period while we're waiting for Godot or whatever we're waiting for at this moment, we fear an invasion, of course. But this this deterrent effect of these kinds of uh, roll rollout of intelligence, I think, is is very very important at this moment. I'd be interested, actually, Andrea, from your experience, and uh, Mike and John, what uh, what you would have to say about that? Yeah, um, just on the deterrent piece. I mean, the other deterrent we haven't talked about. So it's obviously sanctions, export controls. Rose is talking about our kind of intentional leaking to take away the pretext of surprise, which I think is, has been quite effective, as Rose said. Um, but the other thing we're doing is um, putting forces into the region, right, to strengthen the eastern flank, just for the reason that Rose said, because of the potential of spillover. I, I think that was a really welcome sign from the administration to try to start taking steps to reinforce the eastern flank. I think it serves two functions. One, I think it is a deterrent. And alongside sanctions, we've clearly communicated to Putin that if he invades Ukraine, we will increase our force posture in Europe. And I actually think that's the more deterring step rather than sanctions. If, you know, it's basically telling Putin, you do this action, you invade in Ukraine, you might get a small win in Ukraine, but you're going to entirely change the security picture that you're facing in ways that Russia won't like. And so I think, and we've heard the administration kind of communicate that when they put these forces in Romania and Poland, that that was a down payment on what would be to come if he does invade. So I think from a deterrent perspective, that was also a really welcome step. It's a welcome step from the kind of preparedness perspective to try to be ready to manage any potential spillover. So that, that's another, I think, was a strong move um, from the administration that maybe could have come sooner, but but better better late than never. I had just one quick piece, Michael, here is, is uh, Putin for the last, actually in his entire term in office has been claiming that the United States and the CIA and the State Department and others and interfering inside Russia that we've been causing, you know, he's been blaming his economic problems on the, you know, the CIA and others are causing problems inside that we're supporting opposition groups. He's jailing people because he says they're Western agents and sources. He knows that's not true. You guys know that's not true. We have not tried to, to, to do those things to Mr. Putin, but you know, we can. And so I think one of the big deterrent factors that could be here, and I don't know how you would message this to somebody like Putin, is to say, you know, we're going to change the way we do this. We've tried to accommodate you. It's not going to work. We also have, you know, you're a KGB officer. You understand the covert war. You've been pushing it for your entire term. Uh, we're able to also support opposition inside countries. We're also able to do the, these kind of things, constant cyber attacks. And, and, you know, we're able to take your money away and steal it and do all those kind of things that you claim we're doing. We can do those. And, and if, you, if you want to play this game hard, we do have the capability to do it. And you know we haven't done it so far. And you know we can. Yeah. If you could give President Biden one piece of advice going forward here, what would it be? And, and start with Rose. 
It goes back to the uh, remarks I made earlier about Putin uh, wanting the global attention and the high level attention. And actually, President Biden's been good at this. He was willing to meet with Putin in Geneva back in June. Uh, and that has gotten us on, started on a couple of worthwhile tracks, such as uh, dealing with these ransomware attacks. I actually agree with comments that were made earlier. If, you know, if Ukraine is invaded, then all bets are off in terms of trying to make any progress with Russia on our bilateral issues. But I think there has been some success. And my own arena of the strategic stability dialogue, I like the way they have been able to get off the ground with some worthwhile discussions uh, through the fall. So, but again, all bets are going to be off. But I, I only say that to point out that Biden's been willing to have his contacts with President Putin, to speak with him on the phone, to meet with him when it's worthwhile. And I think uh, that would be my advice to keep that channel open uh, because we're going to need to have channels of communication open no matter how bad it gets. Andrea? Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, I def I agree with Rose that, you know, the diplomacy um, to keep the channels of communication open is in a really important one. Um, and to do that as long as humanly possible to continue to explore these options to find alternatives that might avert crisis. So that's definitely piece of it, which I think we see the Biden administration doing quite clearly. And I, I mean, I guess it's, I don't know if it's good advice because I think they're already doing it, which is kind of preparing also to buckle down for what's gonna be a long confrontation with Russia. And I think that's gonna be true no matter what happens in Ukraine, actually. You know, even if this is kind of a long slog and they maintain this force posture on the border and start grinding down Ukraine's economy and grinding down our nerves. I mean, I see this as a really important turning point in US-Russia relations. This administration came in wanting to pursue a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. That was prudent at the beginning, but when they built the force posture in April, that was a pretty clear signal that Putin wasn't interested in that kind of relationship. So regardless of what happens, um, if it's, you know, if we do find a diplomatic path out of this or if it's a full invasion, I, mean, I think we need to entirely shift and rethink what the U.S. and European approach to Russia is going to be. Because I think, you know, this to me is a signal that we're going to be in for a long, hard slog with President Putin. He's more brazen. He's more aggressive. Uh, he's willing to use his military. That's the lesson that he's learned. You learn that you use your military, you get the United States and Europe to the table to have the discussions that you want. So I think, I guess for me, it's like I may be thinking slightly past the, the, this like most immediate crisis, but we've got to rethink entirely what our U.S. Uh, and European policy approaches to Russia. Yeah. John? I remember I was working in CIA's Russia House, our sort of worldwide operational thing when 9-11 happened. And I can remember talking to our uh, the head of a clandestine service about it, saying, hey, there's a lot of things that Russians are up to here, a lot of espionage, a lot of sort of covert attacks and things. You know, now there's going to be so much focus on, on terrorism. You know, you know, we're going to we're going to lose a lot of sort of support here. And, and I remember him saying, don't worry, Putin will always come around and do something to for, force us to pay attention to him. And it's, it's exactly what we're, we're seeing here. So I, I think, just like Andrea said, you know, the administration wanted to focus on China. They, you know, the previous two administrations want to move towards Asia, all these type of things. Putin is almost like Kim in North Korea. He's, he is going to make himself relevant. He's going to use, uh, you know, attacks and other things to make us pay attention to him. So we're going to have to continue to invest in, in Europe. We're going to have to try to tighten up our banking and other sectors so that this elite capture where he uses dirty money to try in, in London and the United States to try to get people and all of these sort of sabotage 
subversion tools against us. It's, it, you know, we, we can't give it up. So it's, we're going to have to continue to focus on it. And I guess the thing I'd said to you before, I think uh, you can't be tough enough with Putin. And I think threatening him with, with the kind of covert stuff that he does to us is something we should consider. Yeah. And I guess the one that I would put on the table is I think um, I would ask the president to think about preparing the American people here a little bit, um, because this is not going to be pain free for American citizens. Oil prices are going to go well above $100 a barrel and people are going to want to know why they're sacrificing, which is why I asked the question earlier, why is this so important, right? I think the president's got to be out there talking about it and all of his aides. That was our discussion on Russia and Ukraine. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.